So I think for people of color, there are things that naturally we do just because that's the world we swim in. We've had to figure out how to, you know, navigate different spaces, how to be the only person of color in different things. But there's still work we have to do, right? Like it may not necessarily always be on the racial side, but there are things we have to do in terms of the other biases and blind spots we carry as we navigate this world too. Because when we really talk about decentering, right, then we are talking about centering all aspects and all entities of life, which means we all are growing. No one has it all done. No one has it all figured out. Right. Um, but if we keep putting into that piggy bank, then we'll, we'll get better at least at coming together and understanding each other's experiences and stories better. Another day, another task, think fast with a whole nother mission complete. Successful-ish. Pick up the weight, press on, and act on the visions to see. I'm successful-ish. Sit back and bask in the glory of all the goals I achieved. Successful-ish. Lose a stack, get it back, reinvest, hope with, then I roll up my sleeve. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Successful-ish. I'm Sarah Michelle, and I'm so excited to chat today to Leah and Rachel Rosen. They are the co-founders of Spark. They are both advocates in the space of equity, inclusion, and unconscious bias, speaking and consulting nationally. They lead national pop-ups for their amazing Spark for Community game, which is designed to spark conversation and disrupt the school-to-prison pipeline, and they are the hosts of the Two Wives in a Spark podcast, they are on a mission to spark and sustain conversations about race, equity, and inclusion. And as an interracial couple, they've learned a lot over the years, and they're committed to sparking conversations that build community and explore how race influences everything, literally everything. They believe intentional conversations are vehicles for change, and they've seen the power of them in their own relationship, and they know that when we really listen to ourselves and to each other, we see the truth in new and revealing ways. And I'm so excited to chat with both of them. I have worked with Rachel over the years, um, both in the Spark for Community game, which is such a cool resource. And I know that it was designed for classrooms, but I use it all the time for all kinds of different team building activities. Um, I've learned so much through my conversations with her and with her wife and just learning how to have uncomfortable conversations and how to be more comfortable in that space. And so I'm excited to talk about that today. Thank you both for being here. Thanks for having yeah, us. Yeah. We're excited to be here. Yeah. So what is something that you failed at this week? Dun, dun, dun. No. <laughs> right into the deepest. Let's jump in, you know, no life that's necessary. Um, <laughs> we just actually, speaking of swimming, came back from Maui, which was a great and necessary for our souls getaway. Um, but for those folks who are traveling, who are, you know, being vaccinated and are staying safe, in order to get into Hawaii, you have to take a COVID test. Um, and it needs, it can't be a rapid test. It has to be a, a lab results test and it can't go over 72 hours. So I, you know, I read all that, I knew that and I scheduled, <laughs> it made sense in my head to schedule our COVID test 72 hours to the minute before we left. So <laughs> if our flight was delayed or, you know, if they were like, well, we wanted it to be 72 hours by the time you landed, then like we were going to be out of luck. Um, so that was a huge mistake. We definitely were worried the entire <laughs> flight. We have been pre-screen cleared. So I was like, I'm going to take that as a sign that we're good, even mm -hmm. though our 72 hours are going to end on this flight. Um, but everything was good. It ended up, you know, at the end of the day, what I ended up telling Rachel was like, look, worst case scenario, we have to quarantine in Hawaii. Right. <laughs> 
like it could be worse. it could be worse you know like, not the worst place to be locked up just right. oh darn i have to stay on a beach for another few weeks right exactly so yeah. you know i mean it was a mistake but it had already happened so i had to let it be and learn if, if you know if we weren't able to enjoy our vacation the way we did then i would have just learned from that moment and paid it forward so my future family members and friends who are going wouldn't make the same mistake there you go yeah, I feel like failure is such an interesting word. Like to hear that question, what did you fail at this week? It's such a, it's interesting because it sparks this big, like dark cloud of like, ooh, failure. But when you think about it as a, a small, like there are small micro steps that you take that don't like hearing that story. I don't see that as a failure, but it's like a misstep, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I could say today I misstepped with you, Sarah, because I like got the time zones wrong because I was like, still on beach time and I was like oh cool 5 30 central and then I was like oh wait 5 30 eastern like whoa you know so there are these little moments in life that I think maybe sometimes society conditions us to see them as failures but maybe it's more of just a lesson or a misstep or a something you know and they happen every single day like if I I don't know for me I try not to see things as failure because they always teach me something yeah, absolutely. And that, I hear that so much when I'm talking to everyone about successes and failures. And it's a weird thing because there's subconscious beliefs we have about success and failure that we wouldn't necessarily verbalize out loud, but they're still in there. Yeah. And, you know, I know you come from an education space. We had a teacher on um, Sarah Torpy and we were talking about growing up, you have that big red F. Mm-hmm. And so we're kind of conditioned that failure is this really bad thing. And then all of a sudden you're an adult. And if you're in the entrepreneurial space, you're supposed to fail. You're supposed to try things and figure things out. And it's like, well, I just spent the first you know, 20 years of my life being told that that was a bad thing. And so it's interesting how many of those beliefs can kind of just fester subconsciously. Mm-hmm. Totally, totally. Yeah. A friend of mine and I, we always joke around about like, we both say we were C plus students. <laughs> so we failed a lot. <laughs> and so when we, we, I mean, she's, she no longer is at the organization, but she was the director of operations. I'm the director of student affairs and services. And you got to be willing to misstep a lot in those two roles. And we would often laugh at the fact that we do our job so well because we are C plus students, right? <laughs> like we're used to oh shoot, we messed that up. Well, here go. We got to pick it back up and keep going. There's not a lot of time to be like, oh man, I made a mistake. And ah, how do I, like, you don't dwell in it too much when you're a C plus student to your point <laughs> around like, if you grow up being like, I got to get the best grade, you know, then you do have less, uh, I think skills maybe to just be like, oh, that's a part of life. Let me keep it moving and, and grow and learn from it. So I tell kids all the time, like mistakes are the way that you feed your brain, right? Like that's how you keep it growing and keep it learning. And, right. But it's, yeah, it's funny to hear you say that. Yeah. Well, a lot of successful people were C students. Yeah. Like you talk to most CEOs and founders of really successful organizations. Most of them weren't straight A kids. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a different kind of learning. And I remember getting in trouble one time. I had a younger girl ask me about going into college, what my advice was. And my advice was that C's get degrees. <laughs> and that she should have fun and connect with people and get to know people and enjoy her life and learn the people skills. And uh, her mom was not happy with that advice, but <laughs> stand by it. Got to keep that balance. Yeah, that's real. I agree. Yeah. I agree. So I know that both of you are so busy and active and have so many different, I, it's hard to even keep track of all of the company infrastructure that y'all are running and 
um, just taking over the world. So I would love to hear a little bit about your story of sort of what got you into this space? Um, what kind of companies did you build? What's your background? What brought you to this couch together today? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> you want to go first? I mean, it's it's kind of why we started the podcast this year, actually, because we were like, we get this question a lot. Mm -hmm. And so it's called Two Wives and a Spark because it really was a spark that kind of ignited we, it, we started out as friends and then one day there was this moment of like oh there's chemistry here mm -hmm. you know but we had this foundation of friendship working in education and so we had a very common lens around showing up with like a social justice lens and a lens for racial equity and really doing the work at the school that we were working at we were both in leadership roles and so we were already talking about really complex things in our school day job and then personally, everything kind of came to a head and we were like, oh my God, there, we have feelings for each other. <laughs> you know, it, like one day everything changed. And from that moment on, I think our journey to just continue to spark conversations with others and to notice like how truly being an interracial couple race influences everything yeah. we, we learned we knew intellectually in the school space and education we knew the numbers we knew what the school to prison pipeline was we knew our own lived experiences but when we came together on the personal front and started watching how things unfold on personally we just couldn't help but have these deeper conversations mm -hmm. and i think that was the first layer i'll let you share more no, that was great. I was like, yeah, I don't know what else I'm going to end up saying. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, the first layer of, of creating, I think, and pushing ourselves to be better versions of ourselves so that we can then create things in, in society. And I think one of the first things was Spark being created. Um, and, and a lot of that came out of finding ourselves in spaces where the conversation was going, where we were allow allowing it to go as the people in it, right? It wasn't getting too deep. It wasn't staying too surface level, but we weren't really gaining much perspective about each other in these situations. And so mm -hmm. I think as people who have seen, especially as educators, the power of when you have the right conditions, what you can learn from one another, how you can connect or like how deep you can go into stories with each other. That's a powerful tool. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It allowed us to, I like to tell people I went on vacation because we went to, um, <laughs> in, to Mexico and I was, on the beach and Rachel was creating spark, right? Um, because she understood what we were saying and how to then turn it into something that multiple, multiple people can use. And it has grown since, I mean, that was in 20. It was exactly five years 16, ago, like yeah. literally almost 14. to the week because what sparked the, our big kind of energy around this was the Pulse nightclub shooting. And that anniversary just happened this past week mm -hmm. and in Orlando and then Alton Sterling was shot and Philando Castile was shot. It was that same week in June that we were like, how are more people not talking about how this is influencing us? And what, you know, what, what conditions do people need to feel like they have permission to go to that deeper place? And so, yeah, it was literally exactly five years ago this yeah. week that all of it kind of came to a head. And from that, I mean, talk about failing forward, like every step of the way, it started on index cards. It started with like a six page manual. <laughs> like it took forever to understand. Sarah, you saw me on the journey like two years in, you know, it's been a journey of just really understanding what is it that will help spark the dialogue, you know, and staying really unattached to like, 
one way. I think there were points when I felt like, oh, maybe it needs to be this, but people were saying, responding to something else. And so it was like, okay, well, let's go where people are responding. Let's listen to our community. And I think it's just taught us so much about how thirsty people are for these deeper dialogues and how curious people truly are and how everyone's really craving to go beyond small talk, but maybe needing the tools and the resources. And so it's just been such a powerful journey. Yeah, I found myself, I've, I'm more in the day-to-day -day direct on the ground as an educator um, actions. And this is my second school that I've helped kind of get off the ground. I mean, I came to this school when it was five years old and the school I worked at before I helped found that school. And I, I think one of the things that is true in any team I've been on is the power of relationship building, right? And, you know, as educators, the number one thing you ask in the educators, like, what do you need more of? And they're like, time, right? Like, I need more time, right? So how do you find this balance of like, really getting people to trust and connect with one another? Because once you can get that really, really, really working, everything else falls into place. Like, Truly, right? Um, the technical things will happen easier because people want to be with each other and work on hard problems. Um, but it's getting people to remember that the relationship piece and the storytelling piece and understanding each other's why and connecting is really necessary. So I've, I've enjoyed being on, on new school teams to really help bring that to light. Yeah, that's awesome. And it, it is, it's such an important thing that I think people are hungry for, but don't always know how to have access to. And I know, um, Rachel, when you and I were working together, there were a lot of parallels because I work in the space of identity. And so it was sort of, we were kind of in these parallel journeys of being on similar but different missions and trying to figure out, okay, this is kind of a massive undertaking to change the world. So how do we do this as solopreneurs and make this happen? And I'm curious with the two of you being an interracial couple, what were the conversations like when you decided to fall into that? Was mm. that something that, did you come from more traditional backgrounds? Was this sort of a surprise to people in your community? Was this something that they were expecting? What were those conversations like? And how did that change your understanding of the importance of sparking some of these conversations? Yeah, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll say the first thing my mom said to me. So <laughs> when I first came out, my mom was like, yeah, I knew that. And then when I was like, you know, because Rachel's not the first white woman that I've dated. I've dated outside of my race multiple times. And so the very first time I did it, my mom was like, you just want to go all the way outside the box. Like, <laughs> you don't want to be nowhere near the box. You know? And I think that that was kind of who I've always been. But I mean, I, I did not necessarily grow up around a lot of different cultures and backgrounds. Um, I grew up in a very Black and, and uh, Latino community. And that was truly what I understood. It wasn't until I got to college that I even realized there were really other cultures or communities that existed beyond what I was exposed to. Um, and from there, it felt like, I mean, well, now you're exposed to it. When you know better, you do better, right? Like, let's, let's meet, let's connect. And it's always, I've always been drawn to difference. I've always been excited to learn how things and opposites work. And, and I don't know, there's just more excitement there for me. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, it was, it was bound to happen, I guess I'll say, just based on personality, but it was the conversations we had early on were our conversations we still have today, right? I think just really still understand, we were just talking about a cultural aspect that's happening in the world right now. Rachel was like, say it again. <laughs> it's like, so here it is. She was like, give me an example, right? Like, cause we do, our, we navigate 
even social settings very differently just based on our upbringing and our experiences. And so there's always a conversation, I think yeah. is the ultimate answer there yeah. um, about things that you would think are small, how we navigate the grocery store, right? Like that's a conversation, right? And the why and how, how we, who, you know, who speeds and who doesn't and the why, like there are conversations always um, in our relationship that, you know, could be a whole podcast series with itself, but. Well, it is. True, yeah. technically. That's, that's literally, cause we've gotten so many questions that we were like, well, let's just share this story. Let's share these layers. Cause it really has been so eye-opening, you know? And I feel like sometimes hindsight can, like our friend says, hindsight is a curse. It's not always 2020 because you forget how that fresh feeling was when you've got, when you've had more distance from a thing. And so I think we wanted to capture these memories before they, it goes too far to where we're like, man, we don't remember what was the story, you know, because mm -hmm. we've been together now almost eight years. And it's like, the early days take, I mean, even though you have early memories, I'll never forget certain moments. Like, bringing Leah to Texas for the first time and she, introducing her to my family and like having those conversations were certainly new and different. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the, the big thing is they, it's like you start one, it's, it's like learning how to swim. Like when you jump off a uh, diving board for the first time, you're like super scared and oh my gosh, what if I hit my head? Like, it's so scary. But once you've done it one time, you realize, oh, it's just water. Like I, I'd swim out to the, and I want to do it again. Cause that was like a big rush. Right. And I think that's how I have felt when it comes to conversations about race and conversations about identity and conversations about our relationship. Cause I see people's intentions. Like I can really feel that everybody in our family and in our space has really pure intentions. And so when there are questions that come to us, they come from a really pure hearted place. And so it's an opera as a, as an educator, like someone who started in this work as a teacher, it's like, what better way than to help change the world than one conversation at a time, you know? And to have these moments of like, this is, it is a lifelong journey. The conversations never stop, you know? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, I haven't obviously had the same conversations that you all have had with your family, but I've had substantial identity changes of leaving a religion or, you know, changing completely where it is, it's an awkward situation because you know, in your gut, this is who I am. And I don't think there's anything wrong with this, right. but when you have people who have only known life to be a certain way and yep. they are coming at you, like, I've not seen this before. So I feel like it's wrong. And now all of a sudden you feel on the defense, like, I don't know, I thought it was okay, but is it wrong? And right. some of those conversations I think can be very tense because there's this really thin line between curiosity and bias and yeah. there's this fear. And I'm curious, how do you navigate fear in conversations? Because I think for many people, a lot of this bias comes from sort of this anxiety of this is new to me, so therefore it feels unsafe. I haven't seen it before. I don't understand it. And a lot of times when you're going through some kind of change or you are the one on the outsider in the minority, you can be a little bit defensive because you're still figuring it out. And so there's all this tension in this conversation where you're almost trying to defend something where you haven't even really had the space to feel confident where you're at. 
-hmm. if that makes sense. Um, So I'm curious, how do you navigate that line of fear and curiosity and creating a safe space to have some of those conversations? Yeah, it's interesting. So a couple of things come to mind, right? Like when you think of curiosity, at least for me, when I think of the word curiosity, a, a spirit of like fun and joy and light, right, come to mind. And when I think of of the first word you said was bias, right? Like biases, which we all have. It's, you know, scientifically proven that there's not one person on this planet that doesn't have a bias. But there's some fear that's attached to that, right? So it's not as fun and joyful, like that light doesn't sparkle in the same way. And so that's, I think, my ultimate answer to this is like, this is why stories are important, right? Because something that makes you afraid, while, while it might be my identity, right? So I'm not gonna, my job is not to convince you that I deserve to exist, right? But, or and, if I care enough about what's making you afraid, then we can get underneath the, the, the blindness that you might have to the fact that I deserve to exist just as much as you do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but oftentimes we don't, right? Oftentimes we're like, I'm not trying to convince you that I deserve to, because now I'm unsafe, right? Like now I don't feel safe in this space. But I think if we have enough curiosity with each other, then we'll be able to stay in those conversations a little bit longer, or at least start the conversations. Like I think oftentimes when there's a, a bias or a negative reaction to your identity, it's easy to shut off and be like, well, then screw you then. I don't know who this is. Sorry, so forget you then, right? <laughs> so I think it's important that we don't do that (laughs) if we can not everyone has the power or position in them within themselves to feel like they can do that part where they're not like well forget you then life goes on right like we have a bigger vision to see this world be a better place because we want to bring children into it right like I don't want to bring a child into this world who's going to be black half black half white who is going to have to defend who they are right so that's my job right now before I even bring them into this world and so that means that I, I have to then swallow some of my pride sometimes to have a deeper conversation to get this person t- to move past their bias mm-hmm. than I will, because that's a bigger, I have a bigger outcome than myself, right? Mm-hmm. And I may not live to see if that outcome becomes in play, but I'll at least know that, you know, I died doing everything I could to make sure it did happen. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think we aren't thinking futuristically, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're always thinking we're in, in, as Americans, especially, we are very individualistic people, right? We are designed to be thinking about ourselves. But there are cultures all around the world who don't have that as, as an identity, right? They're very collective, collectivism style of, of understanding each other and developing with each other and lifting each other up. We are designed to win the race, mm-hmm. right? So I'm only designed to care about myself and my understanding. We're trying to change that narrative as a society, and this is why we're in conflict, yeah. right? Because you have people who are like, no, we do need to be more in community. And then you got folks who are like, forget that. I'm trying to be at the beginning of the race. And until we start really decreasing that mentality um, and pulling it back, I think this work will continue to be necessary. We'll continue to need more people coming to it, which means I can't not have a conversation with someone who might have a bias because I'm black, right? Or lesbian or woman, Um, right? I have to stay in those uncomfortable conversations, especially because I know, and I've seen it enough times that it pays off. Right. Well, in our culture, especially too, I think that we've sort of have this history of there being one right way to live. Mm -hmm. There's, there's a very, um, whether whether you grew up religiously or not, that's very ingrained in this nation of this is the way to do things. 
this is wrong, this is right. And so when someone presses against that, I think that it can make us very uncomfortable mm -hmm. because it's a little unnerving to feel like you have the roadmap for life. And then you're like, wait a minute, I thought that I had the answer to life, but this person is doing something that's completely different. So am I in the wrong? And then if you see someone doing something different and they seem happier than you are, or they seem more successful than you are, that really makes us look in the mirror. And I think a lot of that puts us in panic mode. So I love that when you thought about starting these conversations or sparking these conversations, you took it to a card game and you took it to the classroom. What went into that decision? Why did you decide to start in the classroom? Yeah, I mean, I think just to build on something I just heard before I forget it, because I think the piece around um, the when the light bulb turns on, right? I think we have been conditioned to be fearful of change. And, and I think like what you're referencing around one right way, one right way is not by accident, right? There is just to put it out there. We believe strongly that we need to call things what they are, call a spade what it is. We have inherited a society that has white supremacy culture in the air that we breathe in, right? And one of the tenets, one of the characteristics of white supremacy culture is one right way. So we have absorbed these unconscious lessons about what is correct and not correct. Whether you're white, black, doesn't matter your color. The, our institutions have, I mean, the, this, this country was founded with white supremacy in mind. So I'm trying to demystify that terminology in and of itself because usually people hear white supremacy and it's like oh my god I'm not like a skinhead or whatever like but this is a culture that we have inherited and the more that we can demystify that culture that's so I learned all of this and I was like how do we normalize some of these more hard and complex conversations and how in this moment I saw that the people who are in charge of kind of molding and forming and having the biggest influence on the next generation are educators. There are millions of teachers at, on the front lines every single day with young people. And the school to prison pipeline is so pervasive. It's predictable in every school district. And so to think that teachers, specifically white teachers, because the industry is dominated with white people, it's 82% of teachers are white. So when you think about bias, or that statistic came from five years ago, so hopefully it's changing. But when you think about how bias shows up in small micro moments of like, when you choose to send a kid to the office, the school to prison pipeline is a, a phenomenon that happens when a, a child gets sent to the office for a referral or a suspension. And then that suspension turns into something else. The suspension is either a multiple, it, they become multiple, you know, suspended or referred on multiple occasions. And then once a kid has a record with multiple suspensions, they're more likely to enter the juvenile justice system. So there's a pipeline that disproportionately impacts African-American males. And I, we witnessed it in our school. You know, it, it, it is when you have the opportunity to experience it, you can't unsee some of these patterns and unexperience some of the ways that it, it it impacts lives human beings that we have lost like i've lost former students who have died and have have entered the juvenile justice system like we've seen it happen and it's heartbreaking right and so that has always been a little bit of my fuel since i started the work but then it it took on a new flavor with spark when i thought about our future children and it became more around this line of how do we 
one conversation at a time. We know that in, in our experience with education that, that people do need tools. They need tangible tools like cards or conversation sparkers or, you know, we saw something unlock in people when they play a game versus have like an intense conversation about race, you know, it changes the dynamic. And so we kind of played around with this idea after, um, after being with your family, mm -hmm. you know, it was like witnessing her uh, and experience where there was like, I was the one white person in the room and, uh, and, and we're like navigating all these different dynamics, but games brought us together. And I was like, wow, games are a really powerful vehicle for, for softening some of the weight that people might feel when it comes to these dialogues across difference. Um, and so that's really how it started. And we just happened to be that, you know, I had spent a decade in education. So at that point I was like, well, let's work with teachers and see if this can be useful. Um, but it's actually now used in all industries. Like it's, it's used in um, probably over half of our customers are in school districts, but a lot of summer camps, a lot of um, team retreats, folks use it as community build. It's just a community builder, right? And it helps break down some of the barriers that we oftentimes, these subtle assumptions that we make about each other, we might think, um, you know, we're so different. I don't know if I have anything in common with that person, but once they play Spark, we always find out that we have something in common with someone that we wouldn't imagine otherwise, right? And yeah. so that's really what it was all about is helping people kind of break down these biases in a really um, accessible way without even saying the word bias most of the time. Well, and it is a really, it's a cool tool to bring people together through common ground, because I think we tend to gravitate towards people who look like us, and we're just sort of afraid of things that are different. And um, just to give some context for the game, it's a little bit like Apple to Apple or um, Cards Against Humanity, where you have these sort of cards of, you know, my ideal day looks like, or this is what sparks hope in me. And then everybody goes around and shares their options and then whichever one is picked you talk about why you picked that and it's cool and I know um, I've been in several pop-ups and we've had some really like deep emotional conversations that have come up through the game um, we've had conversations about like the frustration of asking random people to smell our armpits because <laughs> we're not a natural deodorant works and there's been all kinds of just all across the spectrum and I think that it's really helpful to be able to have something to realize we're not that different. And I want to go back to one of the words that you used, um, white supremacy, because there are so many words that are so heavily loaded, things like white supremacy or bias or white privilege. These words have such a connotation. And I think we're kind of programmed in our society to think that every hero needs a villain. And so when we hear something that has a negative connotation, like white supremacy, we can dig our heels and like, oh, well, why am I the villain? Just because you've had some bias, that's not fair. And so then we can lose track of the overall goal because now we're just feeling that our feelings are hurt. And that's not really what that means. So I want to break down a little bit what these words mean. What does white supremacy mean? And how does that get in the way of our overall success in life. Yeah. Yeah, I would say the easiest way I try to explain this to kids as well. There is a dominance that is centered. And then everybody else has to work around, right? So if only one person gets to be in the middle, they get to determine 
how we run things, right? From, you know, how we communicate with each other to what's, you know, satisfactory for how we learn, what's satisfactory for how we share space, what's satisfactory, but it's based on one particular person in the world, right? And for generations, it's been that way. And for generations, people have tried to like peel back the onion, right? And be like, no, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta center more. We can't just center one, like we're such a diverse nation, right? And that was by design, wasn't it? But we don't wanna pull, we don't wanna make space in the middle. We want people to be around. We wanna make lots of space around, but we don't wanna make space in the middle. And I think one of the reasons um, that causes that is, is power is a, a, a dynamic thing. You've ever had some of it? <laughs> You've ever tasted a little bit of it? You understand power is a dynamic thing, and and we as human beings who have egos, you know, we are connected to to power when we get it, um, and that's what keeps that engine running. That's what keeps you know that that nucleus, for example, running, right? So that everything else operates. And so we are now in a society talking about changing the thing that has kept everything operating and meeting the needs of some, but not all, right? And we are now trying to say, man, we have enough data in our society to show that this only works for some. And we're supposed to be the United States of America, right? And so I, I think if people can think about it that way, then you can dig into the characteristics and the tenets and you can be like, well, dang, I kind of do a little bit of that, right? Take your own self quiz. But if you can understand first what's at the root of the meaning of the word is that we center one experience here. And all we're saying is let's center multiple, not let's remove your experience completely and center everybody else's because then we're just gonna do the same exact thing we're doing right now, right? right? And I think that has been some people's agenda, but then we just repeat the cycle. Let's actually center multiple experiences um, and abilities and cultures and learnings. So we really could be this world that I think we have always envisioned ourselves being and really be leaders in some dynamic ways. Yeah. And I could say for myself, I love the way that, you know, you just put that in such a visual way. I can see it and feel it. And I think as a white person, just to be really explicit, right? Five years ago, I felt really uncomfortable talking freely and flowy. Like it, I didn't, I wasn't super versed, I would say. I was just starting my journey talking about it out loud, talking about like, oh, whiteness is being centered. What does that mean? What is white privilege? How am I, you know, what does this mean for me as a white person, right? And I think about it as there is toxicity in the air and it is impacting all of us. It's robbing all of us of our humanity. It's not saying like, white people, you're bad. It's like, oh shit, I, shoot, <laughs> I have inherited. I have been a part of the problem, but I'm also being harmed by this. And so I can detox this air and it will actually help all of us when we start to see things through new lenses and we start to hold space for multiple truths to be true. And we start to think more about like, this could be a both and world. This doesn't have to be an either or world. This doesn't have to be a world where only this system is the one way, right? And I think the more we start to demystify and start to really hold up the mirror for ourselves and do the self-reflection and realize like, 
whatever triggered some fear and anxiety for me when I was first starting out, the more self-work that I was doing. And I love that all your listeners are really into self-development and personal development and entrepreneurialism is like all about self-development. Like you're always looking at your identity and thinking about what is the legacy that I want to lead. Right. And so I think that this just added to that for me, it was like further ammunition for me to really do the inner work to be my best self so that I could be less afraid to have these conversations with more people, you know? And the yeah. more you have the conversations, the less hard they get. It's like the diving board. It's like what you were talking about earlier. Like it is when you are truly your most authentic self and you leave the religion or you stand up for yourself after being in an abusive relationship or whatever, like when you've left something that is harmful and it has impacted your ability to be your most authentic self, there is nothing more liberating than speaking your truth in your own authentic way. And your voice might shake and you might be nervous, but when you're standing up for what's right and standing against something that is harming people, it is just, you feel that alignment, right? You feel like I'm moving closer to where I'm supposed to be and I'll always have work to do, but it's, it's like, yeah, I think it's just something that I want to invite more white folks to do this inner work with me because it really is, it's on all of us to do this work and that's what's going to change the world. Yeah, I love how both of you phrased that. And I think that's such an important thing is that getting or fixing one thing does not mean that someone else needs to take the power. It's not about shifting it. It's really about realizing that there's more than one way to do things. And I know going through my own process of deconstruction, it can be a little bit of a scary thing and you're kind of holding on tight, like, but this was my roadmap. This is how to do things. But letting go of it, I think it just alleviates a lot of fear and it alleviates a scarcity mindset mm-hmm. and it makes life so much more abundant. And I know for me, I, I greatly value diversity. And this is something that I sort of took for granted growing up in San Diego, Um, I mean, there's so much diversity in San Diego. I had friends of all races, ethnicities, genders. Um, And then I moved to New England and it's very vanilla here. It's very different. And it, it changed the scope of conversations. And what was interesting to me is that I never felt like I really had a strong culture stereotype in California. And then coming to New England, there are some very strong cultural stereotypes because a lot of people look the same and think the same and talk the same. And it was interesting sort of to see the ways that being only with people who look and think and talk like me means I will only experience things that look and think and talk like me. And if I am with people who think really differently, even if I don't agree with them, even if we are at opposite ends, it still pushes me to consider a different way to look at myself and to look at life. And it just makes life so much more rich. I have picked up so many fun um, cultural traditions and beliefs and phrases and ways to do things. And I just think it makes life more enjoyable. And I think ultimately creates more of a safe space for us to do that. So one thing that I'm curious about, I know that the importance of conversation and being able to create safe spaces to have these conversations, not everybody is a safe person to have these conversations with, and not everybody is owed our story. 
how do you navigate when to stay and have the conversation and when to recognize that someone is not a safe person to have a conversation with and to just kind of leave them with their fear and hate and walk away? Great question. Yeah, I think that is a great question. I, I the first thing that popped in my mind, so I'll just go out with what my gut's telling me to say is like, there's this like famous quote, I don't remember the whole part of it, but the piece of it that stands out to me is there are years of answers and years of questions. And I think sometimes there are years of listening and years of talking. And sometimes there's a mix right, where we have dialogues. I don't um, necessarily, every person that I'm around share every ounce of my story with, right? Um, I think the conditions matter. I think um, time matters. I think we need to do a better job as a society of watching each other, like literally sitting down and just watching one another, not like to be like, what you gonna do or you know, what harm is gonna be caused, but just to see what our habits are and what is, what's different, what makes you you, what makes me me. And we don't always have to do that through, through the tongue, right? Um, the eyes are a very beautiful gift. Um, and I think, yeah, so I think that's the first thing that comes to my mind. I don't, uh, I'm a very energy style person, so I, I do, trust my instincts. So if, if something doesn't sit right with me or make me feel comfortable instantly, I don't give up on it, but I also don't, let me just make this space what I want it to be, right? I, I listen to the space. Um, I've been trained to do that as a circle keeper. So I think it's, it's really important that we trust our guts and our intuition and know when to lean into conversations and to allow ourselves to just be listeners in conversations, right? Mm -hmm. Or learn when to ask questions and just be, listen for answers, right? Because um, I think that that balance really matters. Um, and people, I think, do more harm when there's a rush to be like, I got to get as many, you know, if, if you're a white person, this is, I got as many white people in my community to do better, right? Like, ooh, actually, you know, get some new breaks because that's going to cause more harm. Um, but if you can create the conditions that allow people to show up to the space and then there's opportunities for real rich conversations to happen, even if it's just space for people to reflect, right? We're not even in dialogue yet. We're just reflecting. Everybody gets the same question. Everybody thinks about it. We're not even gonna talk, right? Like we need to do more of, of those steps before we rush to this. Let me tell you, you know, my experience, you tell me yours and let's now be friends and, you know, follow each other on Facebook so I can see what your news feed says. And you can see what my, like, we gotta, that's the, the, the speed pass, right? And I think we're, because, of our society and how we've been developed, we want to do everything fast. Mm -hmm. Everything has to be fast. But mm -hmm. one of the some of the greatest gifts we've been given on this planet have come from a place of discomfort, right? Like you don't then unlock the box of these magical, beautiful moments until you've gotten uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I think we oftentimes want to bypass. We want to go straight past the discomfort and just get into the nitty gritty and the technical pieces because we've been trained. And you know, you started this podcast off saying that like we've been trained to be to get the A, not the big fat F, right? Mm -hmm. But sometimes you got to get the big fat F, feel uncomfortable about that, really feel it, and then get back up, right? Yeah. And when you are getting back up, that's when the, the magic happens. That's yeah. when the, the beautiful pieces happen. But we don't do a lot of that. So I would urge folks to do a lot more of that part. Yeah. yeah. I think sometimes, too, we can just check the box. Mm -hmm. I see a lot of that where, um, you know, it's, I think it's kind of in the line of tokenizing of like, oh, I have a gay friend. I have a black friend, I watch Oprah and people make these comments that I think they don't think about before they come out of their mouths. And it's almost like trying to earn our street cred 
how much diversity can I put in my roster so that I look woke and relevant so that I'm not a target? How do we actually do the work? Because it's not just about having friends that are, and to your point about white supremacy, you don't have to be white to be a white supremacist. It's totally possible to have a friend that is black or Indian or Asian and is still in the white supremacy. They're really not diverse in the sense of being very different. I think that there's a difference between just trying to hold up appearances versus actually getting to know people that believe differently than us and live differently than us and challenge our views. So how do we navigate that? Because I think that especially if you live somewhere where diversity is not super common, it can feel like a difficult thing. You're looking around, everyone looks like you, you know, it's, you're not going to walk up to someone at a coffee shop and be like, oh, thank goodness, you're not white. Can we talk and be friends? So where do we start? How do we start to build this diversity and make ourselves more open to these relationships? Yeah, I think there are a couple of things. So just to clarify something you just said. So when I was saying white supremacy, I was talking about a culture. So white supremacy culture is a phenomenon. So I wouldn't necessarily point fingers and say like that person has white supremacy or is white supremacist. It's more about white supremacy culture has done a number on all of us and it has impacted our biases and our blind spots. And so those biases show up in different ways for all of us, right? Depending, regardless of, in all walks of life. So I just wanted to clarify what I what I heard and then what I also, what I meant earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think this is literally why I wrote an ebook called Inclusion Starts With I, because I feel so strongly about people needing to do the inner work. Like we are in a culture of instant gratification, performative optics, like there's so much, performing right now and what we really need more of is people slowing down and holding up the mirror and doing asking the hard questions reading some things understanding like there are scholars and activists who have been doing this work for decades and decades and decades who have put out frameworks to help guide us like for example greg peters at fx at at san francisco in san francisco he put out this framework called the triple A framework to do work. We got to do work alone. We need to do work in affinity and racial affinity. And then we do the work across difference. We can't rush the jumping to the across difference work if we haven't done our own work um, because it can do a lot of harm. So I think that's the first thing that I feel very strongly as a white person doing inner work and knowing that I have so many blind spots and biases is the first step and unpacking those is my work to do, not jumping to make a new friend and to say like, what's your experience? I have so much to learn, you know? So I think really knowing the the alone work is is really key. And that's often the thing that people don't do, right? It's not, most people don't choose to go to therapy or choose to slow down and journal and reflect because it's it's we're in this culture of like, check, check, check. I gotta go, go, go. And so I think the first thing is to really remember that inclusion starts with I, we are the ones. And this is, this is, we're talking about a long marathon. And so if we're really in committed to the work, not the performative BS, but the actual, if I truly care about racial justice and racial equity, then I know that it's going to take a long time for me to build relational trust with someone across difference. If I'm white 
and I'm meeting someone who's not white for the first time, my default is to expect that that relational trust to take time to develop. I will never assume that I am to be trusted, right? Because there's a lot of institutional stuff that comes with being white in a, in a cross difference relationship. And so not having that awareness is I think the biggest pitfall that white folks find themselves in. And I found myself in this trap a lot. Like I was there for many, many years until I started doing the inner work. And I think the payoff is like deep and meaningful friendships and deep and meaningful lasting bonds of solidarity. Like I'm in this to listen first and I'm in this to really understand before coming to like, explain or share or you know perform like none of that i think it's just really so much about listening and learning to go inward and to get used to fumbling and messing up and saying the wrong thing because there's no way there's no the only way out is through right like there the only way out is through a lot of messy hard conversations and so i think buckling up and preparing for that is also really important and not thinking that this is a checkbox and people can smell performative allyship from a mile away like people can smell when it's inauthentic and so that's why i think we also care so much about being authentic and and showing up as our full selves yeah i think the only thing that you didn't mention that i think is super important is like and I've shared this with, with you know, Rachel and, and friends before, like, we need to be clear about our whys, right? Like mm -hmm. it should matter to everyone. Yeah, I can say that with confidence, but if, it, if, it, if a person has no connection to why it matters to them or why they should do better or could do better or need to do better, then the, anything that comes after that is just gonna be, you know, on whatever road this person over here takes me or that person over there takes me or this year takes me or that year takes me right there's not going to be a clarity as to why you're showing up to do it to do anything and so then you will make more stumbles and those stumbles will then become your experience and then you'll be like see let's just keep everything the way it is it's easier if we just keep it the way it is right which is what we see a lot more mm -hmm. um so i would say that that's a key thing something else i tell folks to do just on their own just you know as as you get comfortable but look at who you're around Right? Like as a black person, I don't get to only be around black people. Right. I mean, I'm definitely don't now. I mean, I'm I'm married into a white family, but even before that, right? I don't, I don't, I didn't get that chance as a child growing up, right? Like I was always around different. My teachers were mostly white, the students next to me were mostly Latino, right? And so, like, look about where are you who are you around? What stores do you frequently go to? What stores don't you go to? Right. If you love Starbucks and get in your neighborhood, go to one that's not in your neighborhood. Like, like try on some different things and explore the world by yourself to just get an experience for how that feels to be in community elsewhere. Mm -hmm. I think that's really, really important. I think it's it also allows us to see where our blind spots may may be. Right. Like mm -hmm. when I do this activity, I do it frequently. I am very aware that I am around a lot of able bodied human beings. And so I navigate the world with a certain body. And so do the, many of my friends around me. And so there are things I'm not constantly thinking about that give my bias a chance to just keep growing, right? And as someone who creates a school that's for all, right? And adults that's, and, and for teachers who are for all, I gotta be more aware of that. I have to know going into decisions, like you have a blind spot, there's a community you're not thinking of because you're not, seeing it often because of your own experiences so it helps you 
I think really get to an understanding of where you're carrying blinders and blind spots. Um, and you're obviously not gonna, you know, fix all that overnight, but at least having some more awareness of where those blind spots are is really, really helpful. And that's helped me in the work as well. Um, and I wanna just say like, to people who are listening, yes, Rachel as a white woman has named, like as a white person, like this is mandatory for me to do. I think for people of color, there are things that naturally we do just because that's the world we swim in. We've had to figure out how to, you know, navigate different spaces, how to be the only person of color in different things. But there's still work we have to do, right? Like it may not necessarily always be on the racial side, but there are things we have to do in terms of the other biases and blind spots we carry as we navigate this world too. Because when we really talk about decentering, right, then we are talking about centering all aspects and all entities of life, which means we all are growing. No one has it all done. No one has it all figured out. Right. Um, but if we keep putting into that piggy bank, then we'll, we'll get better at least at coming together and understanding each other's experiences and stories better. Mm-hmm. Not completely, not, oh, I made it to the finish line, not, oh, my work is done, right. but better. Yeah. yeah. Small steps, small incremental steps to, to answer this a long, answer to a simple question like we both just shared a lot because we feel passionate about this and all of it is important texture for this but I think the the that what culminates both of our responses is like it takes incremental choices you know stepping outside of your comfort zone time and time again and doing activities that you wouldn't otherwise do you know you this will not happen by accident it right. will not like it takes intentionality. And so, um, yeah, that that's just one of the big takeaways that I was just connected to. And then I think I'll just say this on last thing. One of the key things about doing your work alone is you only accountable to yourself. Right. So like you could tell yourself like, oh, this is going to be really hard for me. Like, I don't know if I'm ready. You are accountable to you. So if you're going to lie to yourself, that's a lot of that says a lot about you to you. <laughs> you're not talking to anybody else. You're not saying anything. Just to yourself. Treat yourself with more like love, right? And with 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 more joy and more gratitude and grace. Yeah. Um, because at the end of the day, you're only either doing well for you or not. Yeah. Um, and that has to start in the home base first. It has to start with yourself. And so anyway, hmm. I just want to put that out there. I love that you you kind of answered um, the next question about unconscious bias because we all have biases and I think that I've noticed one of the things that I feel can keep us from having these conversations is the reluctance to admit that we have bias because we don't want to be bad people but that really is not doing ourselves or anyone else any service. I think it's so important to recognize that we all have bias because we all have ways that we have seen the world. And I think that it's an interesting thing to sort of um, become more accustomed to listening to other people's experiences Mm -hmm. because that's really something that can't be refuted what someone has gone through. And a lot of times I've been very humbled by that, by not understanding something because I've never experienced it, but I've also been on the other side where people don't understand something because they've never experienced it. And I think that that's really important to get to a place where we can recognize, you know what, I don't, I've never seen it or experienced it. I am choosing to believe that you have and what can I do to be better about this? And one question that I want to ask, um, not to close with a super heavy question, but 
excited. Um, I am curious. So something that had come up sort of in a public space was that there was sort of a back and forth conversation where a group of white people wanted to do the work. They wanted to understand what these biases were and how to do their part. But there was also a group of black people that was saying, stop asking us, don't put the burden on us. It's not our job to educate you on this, which then left the white people with, okay, well, we don't know where to go or what to do. So I want to ask this awkward but direct question because I think it's something that needs to be talked about. In your opinion, what do we do when we don't understand something, we want to be an ally, we want to help, but we also don't want to burden someone who is hurting? How do we handle that? <laughs> okay, I'm finding myself having an internal dialogue because on one hand, I'm like, that's, well, don't just look at one map, right? Like you talked a lot about the roadmaps, right? And if you ever have used your Google Maps or your iPhone map or whatever, it gives you alternative routes, right? It says you can take this route and it'll give you, you know, 15 minutes or you can add an additional five and go this route. I say this with a lot of love in my heart. But to your A-plus listeners, you know, the folks who like did what they were told and then they got the grade, that's not going to work. And I say that because if you think you have the right steps and you get turned down and your immediate reaction is, well, then like, how, what are we going to do that? How are we doing work? Right. Then you're, you're, <laughs> you're not, you gotta, you gotta take the alternative route. Um, it's not going to work that way. The second thing I'll say is, is that I'm debating on how to say this, but you know, a lot of people will say like, that's what Google's for. You know, that's what there are books. And I'll, you know, again, I think we all have grown up in a society where you got a syllabus and you were told how to do step by step. But truly, it, the first step you take matters for you. It does not have to be the most grand step. It does not have to be the most like, I thought every part of it out before I could take the first step. You just need to take a step. So if your first step was, I'm gonna go to my black friend and ask them what I should do and they turn me down, then take your second step, right? Um, because I think we have to get better at understanding that sometimes you're gonna be told no and sometimes you're gonna be told actually go do better. And that's a part of the work. So you're already, if you've already been told go do better, cool, then go to the next step. All right, well, it's not gonna work by asking y'all to help us do it because we don't understand why yet which is okay, because you're going to learn why when you start doing the work. <laughs> right. Um, but if you just shut down at that moment, then again, your why wasn't clear. Right. Because it was too easy for you to just shut down. I have to give props to my mother-in-law, who was a white woman in her 70s, who, when I first met her, wasn't in a book club, or she was in book clubs, but not to talk about racial justice and equity, right? Who wasn't necessarily like, thinking through like, what's this experience maybe gonna be like for you? Or should we go see this movie or that movie? These are little nuanced things, right? That now we can walk into a space together and both be like, mm, it's hella white in here, I'm gonna go somewhere else. My mother-in-law and I, not my wife and I, my mother-in-law and I, right? Like that takes time to get to. And when I first met her, we weren't there yet, right? And so just understanding that 
every single day is a step. Yeah. Some steps are going to be really hard. Like there was beauty in Hawaii, beauty, but we stepped on some rocks and mm -hmm. some of the water and it hurt, mm -hmm. but there was still beauty in front of us. Right. Right. You're going to step on things that are going to be hard and it's going to hurt, Yeah. but there's still going to be a, a reason to keep going forward, a why that's going to help you navigate going forward. So to the group wherever that happened, you took your first step. Mm -hmm. You were told no. And so now take your second step. Right. Like, would you give up on, so if you were trying to run a marathon and like you went to a trainer and they told you that you sucked and like go home, would you say, okay, well, never mind, I'm not going to run a marathon. Like, I think we have to recalibrate our expectations about what this work is. It is habit development. We are at, if you are white, like me, this is about changing habits. This is about rewiring our brains. And what helps me in moments of discomfort and moments when I'm called out or corrected, or I feel super like I, it's humbling work. You feel like there, there is, if you are white and doing the work and you're not feeling some struggle or not being corrected or getting criticism, then maybe you're not quite on your le leaning edge yet <laughs> because there is constantly, it's humbling, right? And I think the thing that I remember always that helps fuel me is when I give up, white supremacy wins, truly. Like it is designed to protect itself. So when we choose to bounce back and not give up and say like, dang, that hurt, I need to take a nap and get back out tomorrow. Or like, okay, I can feel really butthurt. I can try to figure out like, okay, I need to circle back and apologize or I need to, I might need to let this marinate for a week and come back in a couple weeks and revisit that conversation. Like every moment is an opportunity to learn and heal. And so I think when we stop committing to that habit development and our own work, we literally, that is what white privilege, it exists to self-protect. Like it is there to keep itself going. So when I give it a big middle finger and say like, no, I'm going to get up tomorrow and try again, I am resisting a system and that helps fuel me to keep going because it's, it shouldn't. And I also feel very strongly as a white person about racial affinity work, like for the white listeners, anybody who's out there, I think it's really important that we sit in spaces with other white people who are committed to this work in book clubs and conversations. And I call it racial affinity work. You can Google it. But it's sit in that space of being triggered, truly. Because when you're around only white people talking about race and hearing a lot of blind spots and biases and microaggressions, you really see the country in a different way. <laughs> you see and experience things really differently. And I, hold, I facilitate racial affinity groups. I hold space for white folks to hear each other and to listen to each other and to do the work with each other because it really is our work to do. There are a ton of articles. I have lists on lists on lists of books and resources and blogs and stuff like that are just about this question because I feel so passionate about it does, it is going to take all of us. And there is a responsibility that I think white people have to go to not lean on people of color for answers. There is a responsibility. If we don't know other white folks who are a couple steps ahead of us on this journey, then that's our work to figure out who do I know who's doing this work, who's a couple steps ahead of me, who happens to have been doing this work for longer than me and how can I just learn and listen right that's how my journey started it started with one white woman who was a little bit above ahead of me that kept me inspired to keep trying and growing and, and working and so I think we've got to get better at not expecting there to be quick fixes to this work I'll say one more one just one more thing 
for the white listeners. And maybe this goes beyond the white listeners, but to the white listeners, you got to get used to hearing the word no. <laughs> when you are centered, the word no is not something that sticks to you as often. And I know this is a generalization in some ways, but I think the way I'm saying it is because whiteness is centered in our society. We've talked about this a lot. And so to be told like, no, actually no, is harder mm-hmm. for, for white folks than it is for people of color because we get told no all the time, right? So we've had to learn how to navigate a world and possibly hear the word no since childhood, since birth, really. It's in our DNA, right? Like our ancestors were told no so much. We are born into this world understanding that, that, that word. I think we've also, not just that, but I feel like we've also sort of been taught that when we put forth effort, we get a treat. If we put forth an effort, we get a pat on the back, we get a good job, you did great. And so when you work really hard and you don't get a treat, or when you do something that was really uncomfortable and people aren't impressed, mm-hmm. It is kind of a humbling moment that also makes you aware of, you know, and I I know that this is something that has also been in the public space of um, having those blind spots of not just because you work really hard and show up every day does not necessarily mean that you are going to have the same kind of success as someone else there may be certain successes that are not as easily attainable. And that doesn't mean that you can't prove a system wrong or find success on your own terms. But I think that it can be harmful to, even if it comes off as trying to encourage someone to basically imply that if someone is not successful or they're not getting a pat on the back or they're not getting the treat, well, maybe you should work harder. doesn't always work that way. It does not, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say, it doesn't always work that way. And if you're able to acknowledge like, oh, I didn't get that, I thought I was gonna do that thing because I was, if I did that thing, I was gonna get this thing. If you're able to have a moment where you're like, I didn't get the thing, you're ready to take another step, Mm -hmm. right? Because there are two different, there are two different versions of that I've seen, right? Some versions are people get really sad and they're like, oh, like, what what did I do? Like, what should I have done differently? Great. Lean into that. And then there are people who are just mad. <laughs> who are like, I didn't get what I want, so now I'm going to just keep doing stuff the way I was doing it. Man, they missed that gift. The gift right there was, huh, I didn't do something. What didn't I do? What was I supposed to do differently? That is the gift. You got awareness. Like you had a moment where what you were given was insight. And you, gra- you grabbed it. You didn't get mad. You got a little sad maybe, right? But you grabbed it. So now take it to the next level. For the folks who get mad, It'll come to them eventually. But I think there is a gift in that, right? To get a little bit of insight. Absolutely. Well, obviously this is a topic that could be talked about and should be talked about um, for many, many, many hours. Um, But thank you so much for sharing this hour with me and just sharing your education and um, your grace and perspective. Um, for anyone listening, would love to hear your thoughts, questions, comments. Um, send us an email at embracetheish at gmail.com or hang out with us online at successfulish.com or Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn at embracetheish. 
Success setting failure, not on opposite ends. Curveball hits, gotta know where to bend. The attitude will affect destination. And if you determines when you're gonna make it. Live between successes, makes life rich. Live in every moment, successful-ish. Live between successes, makes life rich. Live in every moment, successful-ish. Hey, successful another day, another task. Think fast with a whole nother mission complete. I'm successful-ish. Pick up the weight, press on, and act on the visions to see. I'm successful -ish. Sit back and bask in the glory of all the goals I achieve. Successful-ish. Lose a stack, get it back, reinvest, hope, wait, then I roll up my sleeve. Hey, successful-ish. Another day, another task. Think fast with a whole nother mission complete. Pick up the weight, press on, and act on the visions I see. I'm successful -ish. Sit back and bask in the glory of all the goals I achieve. Successful -ish. Lose a stack, get it back, reinvest, hope, wait, then I roll up my sleeve. Hey. All this weight on my arms need both flex. In this race, put behind me most steps. Had to swear the learning curve, hope I don't crash. Hit your nerves when reserves got low cash. When I fail, realize that it won't last. You made it through in the past, just look back. Successful -ish. you can see how the contrast fails and wins. Use the past and the bounce back. You can never win if you never go and do it. Figure is a hard road, rarely ever cruising Embracing all my wins with a handful of losing Expect the drought season when the plan's going fluent I can never really feel it's all how you view it It's all a lesson, just depends how you use it Get all the data and keep it all exclusive Never ending journey and the growth is therapeutic My identity is not in what you see, I am the better me Mistakes others make, I see, have teaching me Compare yourself to others is an insult to tragedy We will make unique, gotta use again collectively Broke down my goals and a few look toastsome Can't take them back cause you already spoke them Easily regressive, you don't stay focused Focus, live between success and emotion Another day, another task. Think fast with a whole nother mission complete. I'm successful -ish. Pick up the weight, press on, and act on the visions I see. I'm successful -ish. Sit back and bask in the glory of all the goals I achieve. I'm successful -ish. Lose a stack, get it back, reinvest, hope, wait, then I roll up my sleeve. I'm successful -ish. Another day, another task. Think fast with a whole nother mission complete. I'm successful -ish. Pick up the weight, press on, and act on the visions I see. I'm successful -ish. Sit back and bask in the glory of all the goals I achieve. I'm successful -ish. Lose a stack, get it back. Back, reinvest, hope, wait, then I roll up my sleeve.